Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by State Farm. Around here, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, and watch again because they're just that good. It's the thoughtful details, the little things other movies don't have that keep us coming back. And here's the deal. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have all the details we appreciate. They make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight. No gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. Look, it's a no-brainer. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Sean, do I look 50 to you? <laughs> this is the Rewatchables Ocean's 12. Yep. I want my money back. The money that your friend stole from me. $160 million with interest. I'm not the only person in the world looking for Ocean's 11. Huh. We need a job. We need a high-paying job. Well, now we're too hot to work anywhere in this country. Where are we going? What are we stealing? (laughs) 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 Oh, it's a great day when I get to podcast with these two. It's Sean Fennessy, Amanda Dobbins. I'm Chris Ryan. We're here to do the rewatchables Ocean's 12, a flawed rewatchables. Is it? Is it? We're going to get into that. That was we've, we've been given this assignment, should we choose to accept it. I feel like this podcast may explode in our hands. Let's talk about Ocean's 12, released December 2004, three years after Ocean's 11, directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by George Nolfi, shot by Soderbergh under a, a assumed name, a stage name. Is it the Peter name? Peter Andrews. Yeah. And scored by long-term Soderbergh collaborator David Holmes. This soundtrack is full of bangers. It was budgeted at $110 million, and Soderbergh would later call it one of the biggest budgeted stoner movies of all time. <laughs> it made $362 million worldwide. And we're talking about this in terms of it being a flawed rewatchables, I think, because it was received rather tepidly when it was released in 2004, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You mean and critically? Yeah. I think critically, but I think that also, like, the if, if you want to get into the, to the sort of fan reacts— I think that a lot of people were like, that wasn't, that wasn't Vegas, bro. As we have learned on podcasts, we should always trust the fan reactions. <laughs> what, what, what fan reactions were you, were you on the boards? What I was, I, I, so funny you should mention that. Okay. I did go to some boards. I did go to some like early Quora style, like oh, Yahoo great. Answers type responses to this movie. That's really where you look in for the truth. In 2004? I'm sorry, did Quora no. exist in 2004? Well, whatever that version it's, of it right, was. So it's like archived? Yeah. Were you on the Google? Like, like web.archive? Yeah. I just got the sense that people were like, there are a lot of flaws to like the logic of this movie and oh. to, you know, the, the heist and stuff like that. I have some theories about why people felt like this was flawed, but I don't want to start off on that st- on that foot. We can get into that. Let's talk about why we love this movie. Amanda. Uh, perhaps... No one has built a higher condominium building on Ocean's 12 Corner than you. That is true. I, we, the three of us, did a Soderbergh, Soderbergh podcast maybe a year ago now. And it was in my top five Soderbergh. 
I love this movie for several reasons. The first being, I think this is actually one of the great sequels. And this is a sequel about sequels. I mean, it's right there in the plot. Yeah. They got to do another job, but it's got to be bigger. And now there are two villains instead of one and they got to figure it out. And I think because it is Soderbergh, it's very smart and commenting on the process of of making movies and also what we expect from sequels. And you know, to your your friends on the fan board's points, uh, it is absurd at times. I mean, you know, I, I don't recommend that you try to steal a Fabergé egg based on the the heist in this movie. I don't know that it's going to go well for you. Yeah. But that in and of itself is like a comment on, I mean, sequels are always ridiculous because you just have to keep like anting up and doing more over the top things to, to like keep the plot going. Sure. In addition to that, and that's just like smart movie shit. That's why Soderbergh is still number one He's in my house. <laughs> and then number two, I mean, this is just like a movie is pleasure principle. Absolutely. And it is also uh, very specifically Amanda's pleasure principles. And I do also think it's really maybe even more than Ocean's Eleven movie um, as star study. Yeah. Because obviously in the first one, it is about the the charisma of everyone involved and the the cast and but they're kind of discovering that chemistry and that hang in real time and this is like oh you want to hang out with some movie stars in Europe here you go yep Sean why do you love this movie I think because I don't have to think that hard about it I think it's sort of the opposite of a lot of what we do on this podcast and a lot of other podcasts we do it's just kind of a loose jazzy goofy euro very very euro movie influenced movie and even though the stakes are ostensibly danny ocean and his band of merry thieves might get murdered by terry benedict it never even really feels that way it never feels desperate it yeah, never feels are, serious yeah it never feels like there's going to be any real consequences yeah and i think that that might have been held against it in the past but as you as you turn the movie on at 9 p.m on a monday night 16 years after it was made, it's much better that it isn't yeah, this, yeah. this tense of ball of anxiety, that it is actually just a really a fun hang. You said last night when we were talking about it, you just, you love to hang out with this movie, which I thought was such a smart way of describing the feeling that it gives you. It's like a friend, you know, it's yeah. not, it's, there's no, the tension is so modest that it's easy to return to, which is obviously the literal premise of this show. Um, I'm, I, I have always been baffled by its, its um, complicated reputation. I think it's like pretty easy to understand it's, right on its face. It's really uncomplicated. That's the whole point of it. What about I, you, Chris? I think that I think it might be his most like achingly beautiful movie. I think the first hour of it, especially the Amsterdam stuff, is some of the most gorgeous stuff I've seen in a blockbuster aimed movie. Mm -hmm. And I think he kind of agrees. In in 2014, he told Huffington Post in terms of shot construction, cutting patterns, the use of music from a filmmaking standpoint. That's the best of the three. So he is very affectionate towards Ocean's 12. Now, in the uh, promo run for Ocean's 13, there was like a kind of fun gag going on where a lot of people were asking Clooney about this, but that Soderbergh had apparently said Ocean's 13 should have been called the one we should have made last time and that it was somehow a correction for 12. But to me, going back, I find 12 to be perhaps the most rewarding of the three. I think one is like perfect and then goes in like a box somewhere where you're like, there's nothing, you can't improve that movie. There's nothing wrong with it. They captioned light, lightning in a bottle. But 12 is kind of messy and has loose ends and untied shoelaces. And I kind of love that about this movie. Um, you know, I think it's really, really 
kind of European for a Hollywood movie. hundred percent. Yeah. It's like got this ennui and like kind of like jet lagged, depressed. It's like if Jean-Pierre Melville had a sense of humor. Yeah. That's what the movie is. It's like the, the way that the movie is made and all the stuff that you said that he is proud of, the, the cutting and there's so much zoom and the grain in the film. But even just the, the atmosphere that he creates, right. the, the setting of the movie, the hotel room hangouts that are happening yeah. throughout the movie. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. You're on a year. It, it is Ocean's Eleven's European vacation. Like that is what the <laughs> movie really is. And I think that like the I, I obviously for whatever reason in 04, this didn't occur to me. But it's like the first hour of this movie is stoned out of its mind. Like that Amsterdam vibe of them is feels very like it's literally what if we raised the building? Yes, that's, like, that's, like, <laughs> I mean, that's literally the plan, and then they do it. So yeah, <laughs> um, I think that the other thing I would point out about this one, even though like it has that weird kind of sometimes like sort of uh, longing or wistful feel to it, is that these are movies about friendship, and for as much as I think that the Oceans movies are sometimes viewed as Soderbergh's one for them that he would do, like the ones he would do so that he could make Che or he could make Solaris or whatever. Um, He told Huffington Post, for all of their fizzy, frothy surface, the subjects, you know, the subjects of these movies are things I take very seriously. Anybody who knows me will tell you that my friends are really important to me and being good at my job and trying to be better at my job is really important to me. What a cool idea for a trilogy of blockbusters. It does make me think, though, that the thing that differentiates the fir- the two movies, the first two, is that the first movie, which is clearly a job for yeah. everybody involved, feels like a heist. And the second movie is a grift. It's a con man movie. It's not a heist movie in and, a lot of ways. And, and we are the marks, totally. in a way. Because at the end of the movie, it we're was, like, everything you yeah. saw was just a show. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Why don't I make the case against this movie? I was going to say, I think some of... We have to do some devil's advocate work. Otherwise, it's going to be three people just celebrating one another's love of something. Okay, you two may do the devil's advocate work. All right, I will make the case against Ocean's 12 as a a flawed rewatchable. You're not making the case against it. You are identifying some flaws while uh, appreciating it. I am method acting (laughs) an Ocean's 12 hater right now. I've re- uh, I like I've I went on the boards you know, last night to practice. No, but I've constructed my entire life to not meet people like the person you're about to play. Well, Amanda. Okay, I'm not getting paid enough for this. My just name for the is Briss Bryan, oh, and I hate Ocean's Twelve, and this is why. Oh, on initial viewings, uh, it can seem contrived and bored with itself, and it seems like a sequel to the Ocean's Eleven press tour rather than Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> okay. I love that. Um, okay. It's got lots of meta jokes about Hollywood spilling into the movie, for better or for worse. Oh, Obviously, no. I, I'm, this God is, forbid this we have thoughts. Briss talking. Briss as in um, the Jewish tradition of <laughs> severing the young okay. male member. Okay. Um, everybody seems tired and jet-lagged. And in the first movie where it was all clean lines and clear motivations— Terry Benedict stole Danny Ocean's girl, and now Danny Ocean is going to steal something from him. Ocean's 12 is kind of convoluted. It brings in a debt that they owe to Benedict. It brings in a game of wits with the Night Fox. You bring in Isabel Lahiri. You also have Julia Roberts in there, but then there's this whole thing with Lamarck and the game and the escrow and what's happening with that. And it's just confusing. And then at the end of the, at the, end of the movie, you find out that essentially the last half of the film was a play was like not was not real and everything that we had gotten so invested when like how are they going to get the coronation egg and how is this going to happen was all essentially a bait and switch to to confuse Talor. so i think that that is what you could say about this movie 
I have no emotional conviction in what I just said. I don't believe it. I think that this movie is only flawed if you have a limited appreciation for what movies can be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're watching this movie to design your own heist, I understand how you would want your money back at the end of it and (laughs) because you need to uh, pay for your legal fees because you're in jail because it won't work. (laughs) I get that. And you know, I guess I guess people do watch movies different ways. If you watch movies as, you know, wanting to be with these people, which it is, it's a hangout movie. It's a and it's a movie star movie and it's a Europe movie. And if you were interested in any of those things or just looking at beautiful images, it couldn't be better. If you are gonna be quite literal about the mechanics of robbing fancy things, um, you know, tough. And yeah. you know, even the stakes of they're they're robbing a a Fabergé egg, like a thing that doesn't matter for a reason. Sure. The heist doesn't matter within the context of the movie. But I, I guess. I think I've thought about this a lot and why I'm not harshly critical of movies like this. And I am harshly critical of movies like Inception. This is just personal preference for me. Mm-hmm. But with a movie like Inception, which I was very critical of on this show, the tone of the movie demands that you take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if you don't take it seriously and you don't try to engage in the lore building and the the logic of the movie, then you're not really getting what they're trying to do and what the filmmaker is trying to say in a lot of ways, which is this really grave emotional set of, of dramatic circumstances. This movie just does not care about that. Yeah. I mean, there are some emotional and sentimental moments. Catherine Zeta-Jones' reunion with Albert Finney and even just like... um rusty kind of reckoning with this stage of his life where Danny was reckoning with it in the previous film. So it's not that it's completely a lark, but it mostly is. And because it is, whether the heist logically works, like I I really just don't do not care. It's just not meaningful to me in, in terms of the execution of the story. It is. a It's a clever movie, which is a word that I have found often bubbles up when people don't often enjoy that. I enjoy that purposefully because there's nothing I like more than like someone telling me that I'm smart. That's my greatest flaw. (laughs) Uh, But not everyone responds that way. And it is a little meta, as you said. Mm -hmm. And it is a little, I guess, like the unkind word would be self-satisfied. But they're just Navel-gazing, whatever. Yeah. 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 And and I understand that that is not a tone that everyone seeks out. I think also if you resent... um, self-satisfied Hollywood in particular Mm -hmm. and the glamour of movie star lifestyle. Part of what I think is appealing about it for the three of us is it's, it is really just fascinating to watch movie stars engage with their own personas in real time in a constructed reality. Yeah. Yeah. There are other people who, these are people who are critical of the Oscars. We're like these self-important blowhards get right. on stage, and that was a critique of the movie. It was like, are. I can't believe they shot in Lake Como. Like George Clooney couldn't even be bothered to like leave his summer home, right? And Soderbergh hilariously was like really annoyed because he was like, "That's actually Visconti's home. We didn't shoot in Clooney's <laughs> home." Yeah, and he was just like, "These pricks couldn't like look that up." Yeah, but I think that that was you know those distinctions or whatever. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the movie stars that we've alluded to. As Sean said that. This movie essentially inverts the central relationship, I would argue, of Ocean's Eleven, which is Rusty and Danny, making Rusty the the sort of vulnerable one, the one who's going through it. Mm-hmm. And Danny, I mean, I honestly feel like Danny is hardly in this movie. I agree. It's true. It's really noticeable. Yeah. I mean, we, we can get to him, but like, to me, like, this is just wild. Like, it's wild how funny and good Damon is in this movie. I also um, agree with that. But he is pretty much the second banana in the movie, and Rusty is, like, the star. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about 04 Pitt, but let's talk a little bit about this performance. What do you think of Brad Pitt in this movie? I it's pretty overwhelming. Your voice broke. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's been a long season of me talking about Brad Pitt while trying to be a professional, respected person in the world. Not respected at all. I don't even know why I said that. I would like to be. Self-respecting? Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I really like the buzz cut. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed last night, I think the fashion has actually like come around. Or I, I think what's funny is that in 2004, he's supposed to look completely ridiculous. The line where they're just like, you dress like, like a jiggle. <laughs> And, I, you know, the the leather coats, which are, like, definitely the thing that everyone goes to Europe and buys and then yeah. is like, oh, I got this leather coat in, yeah. like, Florence or whatever, are still not with it. Because you want to dress like Trevor Howard yeah, but the everything man. else you yeah. can see on the, on the men's runways right now, which is, it's great. Shout out to Brad Pitt. I, he, this is, like, this is peak charisma. Brad Pitt. He's not even really doing anything else. And I think maybe some of the negative response to the movie is that he is, it, it, it's such an internalized performance, you know, that charisma is kind of like going inward. I mean, he's the biggest star in the world, right? Yeah. At this moment, right? Yeah. And this he's, is Troy Oceans Mr. and Mr. Mr. Mrs. Smith. Smith. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's peak cool guy and also a little self-effacing yeah. um, with all of the hotel stuff. And I find it just uh, immensely appealing. Damon was... Not going to do this movie. He wanted to back out. Um, he he was like, you know, I, there's conflicting reports. Some say Damon wanted his part to be bigger. Some say he wanted his part to be smaller. But he was essentially coming off of a born movie and was like, I'm exhausted. Can, can maybe I skip out on this one? Um, I'm really glad he did not. He's essential to the movie. He's the funniest part of the movie. Yeah. And he's the only truly desperate character in the movie yeah. <laughs> and even though it's a life and death circumstance theoretically because he's so insecure and it's a, such a genius trope to reverse someone who is so naturally handsome and charismatic yeah. and turn him into a linus you know and soderbergh does it over and over again you know the informant and contagion and he keeps using and came behind the candelabra he keeps using matt damon in this at, way yeah. in this reversal of fortune way and I, I think it's mostly because not only do you need a character like that to cut Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan, but you need a character like that to cut George Clooney and Brad Pitt. You yeah, know, there has yeah. to be someone cutting against that. And I don't, Dave, <laughs> just the line readings are amazing. Just when he Tremendous. wakes him up on the flight to Europe, <laughs> That's awesome. he's just like, "What are you doing?" Which is, <laughs> "What are you doing?" <laughs> and and that 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 obviously was written as like a self referential yeah. moment yeah. to what you were yeah. describing to the idea that he didn't want to do the movie, but he needed a more integral part in the yes. in the heist, aka right. a more integral part of the movie. I've been doing my homework. I'd really like to to play a, a more central role this time around. Right. I feel like I've, I've, right. I'm ready for that, and I, and I wanted to know if I could do. I was wondering if I could maybe come to the meeting and help you guys negotiate. He and Pitt have fantastic chemistry in this. They really they found a new level, um, and I really enjoy it. It's dynamite. I mean, like the meta moments start from pretty much the second the group are back together, and we can talk about all of them. Uh, we can get into the categories, though, I think. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll get into the categories. Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Simply Safe. With home security, there are two ways you can go about protecting your home. There's the traditional way, where you wait weeks for a technician to do a messy installation that costs a small fortune. Or there's the other way, Simply Safe. Simply Safe is everything you need in a home security system. It's award-winning protection two-time winner of the CNET Editor's Choice Award. Simply Safe blankets your whole home in safety. You'll barely notice it's there, but what makes it truly remarkable is you can set up this system all by yourself. 
Anyone can do it. It takes 30 minutes, an hour tops, and there's absolutely no trade-offs to your safety. You'll have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police to your home at a moment's notice 24-7. It's why The Verge calls Simply Safe the best home security system. Check it out today at simplysafe.com slash rewatchables. Get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial at simplisafe.com slash rewatchables. Simplysafe.com slash rewatchables. All right, guys, we're back. Ocean's 12. Let's do their most rewatchable scene. We've pretty, I think we've gone through a lot of like whatever the flawed part of this movie is, but we can save any other discussions of that for what's the worst. Uh, most rewatchable scene. I will throw some nominees at you. The 12 reunion. Danny, it was one job that we did together, so I don't know where this whole proprietary stance comes from. <laughs> Scott Kahn, really good in this movie. Yes. You told me that your wife said that he called it Ocean 11. Now, who decided that? I'm a private contractor. It was a collaboration that moniker is insulting. Yeah, I mean, Danny, it was one job that we did together, so I don't know where this whole, like, proprietary stance comes from. Wait, it seems a little possessive. One could know? make the argument that because it wasn't... Uh, also breaks a couple of times. But you can <laughs> <Yeah>. see <laughs> the t- he, they use takes where he, like, cracks up at Elliot Gould and walks away. Uh, the breakdown of the uh, the Vanderwood heist and, and Damon being like, do we have to call him a freak? Oh, hey! What? Do we have to use that term? What term? Freak? I mean, the National Institute of Mental Health estimates that 5.6% of adults develop agoraphobia at some point. Whatever. I'm just saying. I mean, do we... I I don't think we need to be the kind of organization that labels people. I'm not an organization. What, would you call Emily Dickinson a freak? Are you hosting a teleton we don't know about? Who's Emily Dickinson? (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, would you call Emily Dickinson a freak? <laughs> I just don't think we have to be that kind of organization. Yeah. They just put like a Robert Altman scene in the middle of this movie yeah. where there's like 18 different overlapping dialogue parts. And there's like, it's fun to watch it with subtitles, actually, because you can see like Pitt mutters like, don't touch my food a couple of times to people, which is a great nod towards the the food thing that goes throughout these movies. Um, the Matsui meeting. With Robbie mm. Coltrane. An all-time. Uh, just absolutely. I remember also when I saw this the first time watching that and just being like, <laughs> this is fucking incredible that they're just doing a five-minute scene where no one knows what each other is saying. Um, and Damon's doing the lyrics to Cashmere is incredible. Oh, let the sun beat down upon my face. Stars to fill my dreams. I am a traveler in both time and space to be where I have been. Cashmere? Is that your idea of making a contribution? We haven't even started. We haven't even gotten to the terms yet. We're this close to losing that. Okay, I don't even understand what happened in there. What did I say? You called his niece a whore. A very cheap one. What? She's seven. I'm currently confined to bed with a wicked oh, case. No, don't, don't, don't tell me that. I'm sorry. I love the banter at the waiting at the train station to mm-hmm. leave. Mm-hmm. Um, just all the like, how old do you think I am? Yeah, dude, we know Rusty's not 50. I'm 50 years old. Let me ask you something. Let me, let me ask you something. How old do you think I am? 48. I think I'm 48 years old. 52. And the way that they handle that. You put a man in a handbag. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, the Amanda Dobbins memorial pick for Vincent Cassell's introductory montage. 
Just film on location. Just always film on location. That's all I ask of anyone making a movie ever again. Film on location. Thank you. Uh, Rusty and Danny getting drunk on red wine when Danny gets yeah. woken up at 1130 and they watch Happy Days mm-hmm. uh, on in Italian. Yeah. You know, I talked to the doctor about getting that tattoo removed. But given its location, he advised against it. That guy doing potsy is unbelievable. That guy doing potsy is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> um, Bruce Willis in the hotel. I, I mean, the entire test comes to Rome scene. And yeah, test coming to Rome. I think that the entire Julia Roberts from the hotel to yep. the museum, but the Fabergé theft sequence is incredible as well. But the Bruce Willis coming in, breaking the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh wall of this movie... Hey, Jules, yes. that reminds me. You know, I've been meaning to call you since the last time the girls and I were down in town. So oh, it's so good to see here. you. See so you. relaxing. Sorry, I'm a mess. <laughs> anyway, Tallulah left her SpongeBob blanket in the red casita. Okay. So what I want to do here. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Is call and just their interaction and Glenn Snackwell and everything that's Bruce, going on. Bruce, Glenn Snackwell publicity. <laughs> everything that's going on with Damon in that. Tallulah's SpongeBob. <laughs> And, you know, we could throw in uh, Marcus, uh, Marcus, the Night Fox Capoeira dance and everything. I think you have to. Yeah, all that all that stuff kind of goes into the last sort of 25 minutes before the final, okay. like, Lamarck and Lahiri okay. stuff. But uh, those are the ones that I have. Sean, you have any other ones to add? I, I thought the reintroduction to the 11 at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. is pretty great. Yeah, I think where Danny, Benedict is coming through yeah. and catching all but of them. But even before that, before we see him approaching the people, essentially Danny in the bank, Mm-hmm. and opening that way and yeah. kind of creating that similar like Thomas Crown affair energy at the top of the movie and you think it's going to be one kind of movie and then it doesn't right. become that kind of movie yeah. like him deciding not to rob that bank or whatever it is that was was going through his mind at the time is almost like the pivot for the movie you know it could have been one kind of um, grittier American tale and then it becomes this much more international it's also a, a nod to the beginning of Out of Sight with yes. the bank, Absolutely. bank teller um, um, and then Rusty visiting Topher Grace. Yeah, it's yeah. also my list. It's so <laughs> an all-time one. Unbelievable. And I really like um, Eddie Jameson's stand-up comedy yeah. uh, in the matador suit. Yeah. <laughs> what is he like when he's just like, he's the modern man, alienated? <laughs> it's unusable. I could probably get 20 minutes out of it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that there's also something about the self-aware, self-effacing little touches that come through the movie. It's a memory movie in a lot of ways, and it keeps putting title cards up on the screen and saying, six days ago, oh, you know, yeah. this like, much money. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Those right. timelines yeah. don't add up. But the, I do like the one in particular when um, the Night Fox is explaining the story of Lamarck and the American Businessman, mm-hmm. played by Jerry, Jerry Weintraub, Weintraub, who's mm-hmm. the producer of the and movie. And then he brings the whales in in Ocean's 13. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so all of the little, like, it's much more of a flashing moments movie. Also, Cherry Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, was the last and, one I was going to add. that moment in the truck with, with Matt Damon. I am, I'm really proud of you. Thanks. We both are. You, you told Dad? I had to, sweetheart. You told Dad? I'm sorry. Great. Be dining out on this one for months. One of the funniest moments of the movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, I love how she just like is chewing gum when she comes into the to the jail cell. She's like, I want that one first. Yeah. What were some most rewatchable scenes for you, Amanda? So I have a couple runners up. Uh, the the Matsui meeting is just if you if you had to give someone what four or five minutes of these movies and just be like, here's what it's about. (laughs) It's a pretty good distillation. Yeah. yeah. When I was watching last night. 
Clooney is amazing in that one because he just doesn't move. He's just sitting there not saying us. It's and it's so good that deadpan deadpan look. Yeah. And obviously Damon with the comedic timing between the cashmere. It's really good. Uh, and then also on a similar, just a good summary of these movies, like the the Pitt and Clooney watching Happy Days. Sure. I, I watched this with my husband last night. He This is the only time he's ever done this. I was 10 minutes in and he walked in. And he was like, oh, start it over. I want to watch the whole thing with you. And he'll never watch the rewatchables with me, which is just, this is a great rewatchables. But we got to that scene and he was like... This is a really beautiful movie about male intimacy, <laughs> which says everything that you know, uh, need to know about my husband. And and anyway, but I thought that was true. It's a lovely little scene about friendship and hanging out. And it's I like think- a perfect thing that Russ is just like, well, that's too bad. You're awake at 1130. Yeah. Like, that's like what any b- person would yeah. probably say. Like, and he's like, come on, you know, yeah. let's get you drunk. But it's also the inversion of that five minutes later when Rusty is bearing his soul and Clooney is so tired <laughs> yeah. and not paying attention to him at all the way men will often do when another man is unburdening his soul. It's really smart. Um, really but but that those aren't my scenes. I know. What's your, what's your scene? My, my scene is the whole, the test goes to Rome. Let's talk about this. Yeah, um, I, this would be my pick too. I wasn't in four weddings. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember when this happened. I, I when I saw this the first time, I was kind of like, someone had this idea, and this is why they made the movie. They were like, "Wouldn't it be funny if we did this?" And then it's like, we should probably just put yeah. a movie around this. Yeah, uh, it's it's like one of the best whiteboard throw a throw something at the wall and see what sticks things that I've ever seen executed. In any other way, if it had been handled in any other number of ways, it completely undoes the entire project. Like, not just this movie, but any of the movies. And yet, when you watch it, you are like, I just took six hits of nitrous. I cannot believe how elated and fun this this whole bit is. It's reminding me a little bit of what Curb Your Enthusiasm does, which Mm -hmm. obviously is a show that I'm obsessed with. And Curb Your Enthusiasm frequently casts very famous people in very small roles. But it also, because it takes place in Hollywood, casts real people as bad versions of themselves. So Ted Danson is a character on the show as Ted Danson. But this season, Vince Vaughn is on the show as a a guy named Freddy. (laughs) (laughs) And there is an absurdist premise to that that is really fun and feels like so uncontrollable. You know, movies are so predictable in so many ways and so standard and so designed and so... They're working so hard to make audiences feel safe so that they don't leave, so they don't turn it off, they don't walk out of the theater. This is a real, like a genuine risk. Now, it's pretty daffy and screwball and in, in a great spirit, and it's people that the three of us love doing these things. So it's not, we would never walk out of something like this. But it would be confusing to some people, and it would be too meta. And I think when Bill wanted this to be a flawed rewatchables, I think specifically the meta aspect of this story and these sequences, some people just didn't like or turned against or thought was, right. as Amanda was saying, self-satisfied. I, I personally have the exact opposite relationship There's two to reactions it. to this. You either watch this and you go, holy shit, yeah. this is the most delightful thing I've ever seen, or you immediately switch your brain to the other side and say, so wait, if Tess looks just like Julia Roberts and that's a thing, does Danny look just like George Clooney? Exactly. That's exactly what I think in the Curb Your Enthusiasm universe. I'm like, is Vince Vaughn in Hollywood while right. Freddie is also here in the show? <laughs> Someone is- explain to me 
how these th- right. and that's where Inception comes Does in. Linus hey, look just on, like Matt Damon? You're on the message boards with Chris now. Because <laughs> Julia Roberts exists you, in this universe, and we know that Adrian Brody exists in this universe. Yep. But Matt Damon and George Clooney and Brad Pitt don't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying that. Uh, why are you guys? Here? Let's call in George Clooney. George, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing this? This is probably one of my all-time favorite movie scenes. I'm not doing so like, anything. Please don't. <laughs> yes, you are. I'm You're not doing, doing anything. I'm character. All this time, I'm like, hey. You're supposed to be the Linus of this group yeah. and not the person on the message board. You are supposed to bring positivity and we can work this out and we don't have to train a cat. I thought it was more like the... Like the Frank. You're the you know? Glenn Snackwell. You're the, <laughs> you're the Linus. Because you would say, we don't need to be that type of organization. That sure, was, I was that's like, that true. was Chris. That's, that's, that's true. you. Okay. From now on, no more flaws. Yeah. What, no, it's just not about this scene, which I, I think your point is right, is that you do have to bring a ton of extra knowledge to this scene to actually get what's going on. Or at and, least every every joke. You know, even when um, Matt Damon is like at the end recounting the plot of The Sixth Sense to Bruce yeah. Wells, and he's like, I knew when he was at the restaurant. <laughs> he's like, oh, you like picked up on movie. that. Yeah. You know, and it's not like they say The Sixth Sense. You just, there are yes. so many things that you have to know. And I understand that that is... Uh, off-putting to some people, and I get it. We three are obsessed with this stuff, and I am obsessed with movie stars, and I am obsessed with movies, and I live, and I, you know. You know that Julia Roberts' husband's real name is Danny. Yes. So that that joke lands super fucking hard when they make it. Doubly funny and doubly confusing. Yes. Which is part of the bit. And using Tallulah's real name, that's Bruce Willis' daughter's name. I think Marcy... is Julia actually his her publicist. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yes. And they're setting it up throughout the movie of, oh, you just can't say that, never say it, that she looks like the other person. Yes. And then they're setting up the all the jokes about being in romantic comedies, which I, you know, I find like so funny. I so as people who consume all of this and are sort of like the inception nerds, but for this type of movie, I I just find it I think it is self-serving, but it is also serves the audience that is me. It's and a, I loved it. it. The thing that makes it the reason that the, the nose plays, so to speak, <laughs> in this in this scene, is Damon and Roberts's reaction when Bruce Willis comes yeah, in. Yeah, I almost it's fucking incredible. Where they're just like, Damon, I want to like Tony Romo this with like a telestrator. <laughs> Damon's face when Bruce Willis walks in, he goes like, oh, he's just like, he's like so excited to see Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts' face. It's like, like, I, I love, love you. Is literally, I actually think it might be some of the greatest American acting I've ever seen <laughs> because she is a woman pretending to be Julia Roberts and Bruce yes. Willis is greeting her as if she is Julia Roberts, but she is this woman who's like, holy shit, the guy from Moonlighting is walking up right. to me. And she's just thrilled. I genuinely wondered whether they knew that it was happening until he walked on because she is so delighted and surprised. So they apparently went through like 23 different versions of how to play this. Good like they that. rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and I'm sure a lot of it's ad-libbed anyway, but it is amazing. And then credit to him, Willis is just like so good in He's this. Nails. He's nails. Yeah, so good. it's amazing. It's perfect the way that he plays it. Nice and- to meet you, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite little moments in this scene, which speaks to the veracity that we're talking about, about every choice that they made, is when <laughs> Glenn introduces himself 
And then Bruce gets flustered, and he's like, you dropped Marcy? Yeah, you fired Marcy? Huge, huge oh. You fired Marcy well, two weeks ago in Taos. You told uh, me actually, I should uh, go with no, Marcy. No, 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 no. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Maybe, tell him what happened I, with Marcy, I will, I will. Lynn. There's a story? Yeah, a, a, a always a story with no, no, Marcy. No, 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 Marcy, Marcy, <laughs> that, that old thing. It's the thing. This is such a surprise. You should sit down. I'm, I'm with the studio. Marcy's still very much in the picture, sir. Um, I just, <laughs> which is a real thing that happens. Yes. You know, there are there are publicists that are working from the studio. There are personal publicists. There is a fine line. Usually, when you're on a European tour for a film, right. you're working with the studio publicity. It's like the the level of specificity in the jokes and in the delivery. Is We're so looking perfect. to come really right. strong, strong off, off of this baby. baby. <laughs> And they're all enjoying it. Like, you know that these are people who have had to put up with, uh, like, versions of this nonsense. And they're clearly having so much fun roasting everyone. I mean, when Damon's in the car and he's like, we have suffered some personnel losses (laughs) due to something. And just, like, doesn't know what to say. And Sini's just clearly making fun of every single person. who is getting killed for his accent in the movies in the first one. Just killing Julia Robert, killing Tess, yes. quote unquote, for her accent. Just be like, you gotta elongate the vowels. And he's just like doing the most like, I think this Cockney is actually pretty amusing, but I think some people with that actual accent. Yeah. Shades of Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, yeah, right. So obviously, uh, Julia Roberts hotel scene gets most rewatchable yeah. scene, but the entire Julia Roberts Tess experience in the movie will go most rewatchable. I, I will say, we talked about it a little bit on the first one. I... I sort of don't really get the Julia Roberts aspect of the first film. Like, I feel like she's really underused in the movie. And maybe there's a case for that, that like right. just a dollop of right. her goes a long way. But this movie like really utilizes her mega yes. charisma in a great way. Well, now, because she gets to be a part of the gang. That she's the 12th. It's Ocean's yeah. 12. And I think, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but I think, well, we will talk about Catherine Zeta-Jones in yes, this we movie will. a lot. And I think in these movies, you only want to spend time with the crew. That's it. And so when she gets to be a part of the crew, she has more time to shine and they get to have her be the greatest movie star of all time. She's not even trying. That scene where she's just watching him mix the paint at the beginning. So, so good. I, it's the disdain is and the frustration and it's tremendous. It's too much ox blood. Yeah, it's so good. It's your paint. What's aged the best? The look, sound, and feel. It's, it's actually like Sean said in the beginning, I think it's as much a background movie as anything else, it's great to look and to listen to and just doesn't mm-hmm. demand a lot in the brain. I just want to say also, we don't probably, we've done a bunch of pods about Steven Soderbergh movies, about his top five. We did Ocean's Eleven. Probably don't talk enough about David Holmes's contribution to the legend that is Steven Soderbergh. He's done numerous films with him and especially these movies and Haywire. It, they're great nods to like 70s Italian crime soundtracks and Goblin soundtracks and more Cone soundtracks, but like, he's so fucking good at making yes. these movies cool. Like, he is essential to these movies. I completely yeah. agree. I don't I, I don't have anything to add. Like, I don't I don't know where they would be without... Right. And it, and his style is flexible, you know? Sure. And also the found music they pull, the sort of, the Italian orchestrations and some of the pop songs mm-hmm. that they pull and some of the yeah, recorded pop the songs. Mo- the one, the, the third man zither type music that they play at Isabel's mom's funeral. Yes. When Rusty is watching her from the tree is like from some 1970s Italian crime movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, what a get. Uh, other, other what's age the best, Lake Como and Vincent Cassell's lifestyle. Just the fruit smoothie is elite shit when he comes out. He's just got like... <laughs> A giant platter of fresh cut fruit. Do you aspire to that? I would love to live a life where not only is fresh fruit always around, but I don't have to think about 
it's procurement, it's freshness, or it's disposal. Right. It's just there for you. I love I love when I see people's houses and there's just like fruit in a bowl, fruit here, fruit there. And I'm like, God damn it. You know, every time I go to the store, I'm just like, am I really gonna have six apples this week or three apples this week? Like, probably not. Right. And then when I get them, I usually throw them in the fridge. So yeah. it's like they just kind of like are hidden anyway. So nobody knows about my fruit. This is an amazing emotional excursion on I, this podcast. I, I agree with you. Is that weird? No. Do you guys I, have anything like that where you're like, yeah. I wish well, I, just I had do, a life. I just, just buy fruit. I just do what you're describing. Yeah. And I have a fruit bowl eat, in my home. I know. I, I eat a lot of like, fruit. I know you eat an apple every day. Yeah. But no one else does. They do now. Yeah, but like <laughs> okay. you eat an apple in solitude. What you got to do is in have like solitude? A, a, a veranda. You sound like a sociopath. What we need to isolate here is also like we like fruit as actual sustenance and thing that you're eating every day and fruit as a like, colorful addition. I mean, as still life, you yes. know, it is like a yeah. it's been in paintings for hundreds of years and now it is like a sign of um, I, I find it very beautiful, yes. but also aspiration that you can just have like an opulent bowl, right. like Toss a beautiful like wooden a bowl of like or of citrus. Yeah, right. Um, which I have often aspired to. I've even tried to grow uh, citrus trees in my New York home in order to get to that place. But yeah, you do have to keep them in the fridge to keep them fresh. Yeah, if you're going to use them. This has been Spotify's newest podcast, <laughs> The Hottest Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lake Como, uh, Pitt's performance. Uh, just Pitt's whole, like, yeah. I'm going through a lot, you know, but, like, also I'm still the most charming guy in the room. Right. All of his, like, freeze-frame facial expressions, pre-meme, but still great, you know. Uh, the phone still, the one when he realizes the phone, the phone is stolen. Oh, and, yeah. 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 So uh, his line deliveries in are incredible. Uh, I actually would have watched Rusty Ryan, Hotel Owner. As a movie. <laughs> sure. a good call. Yeah. Maybe we can save that for yeah. a question that comes later uh, in the show. Damon's Thirst. Just an incredible vibe from him in this movie. Like, I in the first one where he's like, I'm trying to get out of the shadow of my dad, kind of. Like, you're like, okay, this is fine. But, you know, this is like a great idea for the third person is yeah. to give him like this, this thirst. I love the idea of him also just in this stage of his career, quickly pivoting from caving in the skulls of terrorists in Bucharest in the born supremacy and then going straight but, to this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that being the the jump, that's also a sign of somebody who knows what they're doing. And even if he didn't really want to do this movie in the first place. Let me see where he was in 04. So in, here's Matt Damon's couple of years here. Ocean's 11, 2001. Jerry, 2002. When's the Jerry rewatchables? That's, is that flawed? You and I, live rewatchables on a hike through the desert. <laughs> oh, who says no? Born Identity, 02. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, 02. Stuck on You, 03. Jersey Girl cameo, Born Supremacy. So he'd done two Born movies and he came into Ocean's 12. And these guys are like, you're the nerd who stands over there and talks about Emily Dickinson. Did I tell you guys that I saw uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, which features a Matt Damon performance? Does it really? Yeah. Two very important performances in that movie, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Okay. We'll, well circle back in 20 years to that rewatchables. Okay. Or our Askewiverse pod. That's right. Oh, boy. Uh, generally, what's Age the Best is the uh, chemistry of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys think is Age the Best? That was the last uh, That was the last nominee. I had just kind of this group of people being together, and then you look at what they've all done in the 15 years since, and you're just like, yep, still checks out. I mean, I know they accomplished most of that with Ocean's Eleven, but they got them all back. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then the concept of movies is, as... Um, an excuse for rich people to have vacations, which mm-hmm. let's just do it. Let's do more. That's let's right. have, let's send more people to Europe 
and then film. E.g. any Adam you Sandler movie set in Hawaii. Exactly. <laughs> Not just Europe. That's what I'm saying. Across the world. Yeah. There are many beautiful places that I don't know about that I would love to learn about through watching a movie about movie stars on vacation there. I think I would go with the first one that you suggested, the sort the of look, the look and feel yeah. and the style of the movie, which is very different from the first. You know, the first is obviously, it's a remake of a Rat Pack movie. It's a very American. It's a very casino bound. It feels like it's inside of one particular kind of world. And this movie is so different stylistically and setting wise. It's much more like, you know, the Italian job and Rafifi and Bob LaFlambeur and all of these other movies, these Italian heist movies but with a slightly different, very Americanized sensibility on those movies. And it has the, That was a great choice. It has know? the like mild sadness of expats, of, of being disconnected. There's I'm not gonna get into too much shots stuff. No, no. This is a good time to talk about shots. The shot of them coming out of the hotel in Amsterdam, walking past like the flower store and onto the bridge. Right. And then they're talking about like 3D printing and stuff. And then Clooney opens up his heart and Pitt just walks, walks away. away. <laughs> but if you just, I rewatched that, I, I watched that, I rewound that shot like three times last night. It yeah. was just like, and he's going behind the like that iron gear. Yeah, yeah. The wrought iron, like sort of girdings of the bridge. There's like a four second period where the, you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. And then he just pops up and there they are at sunset in Amsterdam. And they're just kind of like chatting with each other. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. What the hell? No. It, it's almost like a mockery of the conventions of beauty in that kind of filmmaking, yeah. though, too. You know, like when they're when Cherry Jones removes them from prison and then it does a zoom oh. and then it does like eight consecutive <laughs> yes. zooms on the characters. It's almost it's like such a like on the nose self-referential He's so fucking good. Joke. He'll just do like yeah. a handheld shot and then all of a sudden have 10 people in the, sh- yeah. in the frame. It's, yeah. it's just incredible. No, um, I do think that's really important. I was thinking last night as we watch it, we always talk about like they quote like they don't make them like this anymore movies. And usually we're talking about like they don't make an original adult drama with actors or movie stars where people get to talk to each other, which this is, by the way, this mm-hmm. is they don't make kind of heist movies with this many movie stars on location in Europe anymore. Yeah. But it's rare that the movies they don't make anymore like look as good as this does. That's yeah. another thing where it's not just that it's like a genre or a type of experience of movie, but like the filmmaking is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, Soderbergh has cited uh, Joseph Losey's Modesty Blaze, um, John Frankenheimer's Seconds, French New Wave, Italian crime films. Uh, obviously, there's there's some Altman stuff going on in here. So you could pretty much just study this movie for days. That, like just even like the sideways shot of, Tess's plane landing in yeah. Rome. It's just like, why? like, you don't have to do it like that. Exactly. There's so much that you just don't flexing. have to do in this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is age the worst? So let us do, let us speak now of Catherine Zeta-Jones because I think that there, she is the new addition to the cast. Like mm-hmm. Night Fox is just basically the Andy Garcia stand-in. The presence of Catherine Zeta-Jones also takes, I think, it's it's the most somber part of the movie. It's like the heartbreak of of Rusty leaving her. She's pursuing them. She's getting in the way of them being like great, whatever. And then also like the kind of melancholy ending of the movie is essentially built around Isabel. And I think that your mileage may vary on this. I actually find her delightful in this movie and find that she has way more chemistry with Brad Pitt than Julia Roberts has with George Clooney, but I could be, I could be talked out of it. I think those things are very subjective. Amanda. Yes. Catherine. So just to speak to the chemistry point, I think that the 
that George and Julia actually have plenty of chemistry, but they're meant to be at a different point in their domestic, you know, she's mixing paints mm-hmm. and it has too much oxblood. Sure. Their second three year anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and they're and they're commenting on that. I think even in the first movie, like they are like like you to your to your point, like they keep Julia in the penalty box for a lot of that movie. Yeah. Well, there's some frost. Yeah. Which is a, just a different type of chemistry, sure. in my opinion. No, but you and I were uh, talking a bit about this last night, and I think I said to you, she and last night. Like, I don't feel that she and Brad Pitt have that much chemistry, but I was actually wrong. And I just wanted on the record that I admitted that I was wrong about something. It's not. That- <laughs> Let me assure you that this is being recorded. Okay. Well, I just want everyone to, to know say you're on the record when you're on a yeah, podcast. No, but it's more like I want you two to remember it the next time that you try to tell me that I'm stubborn or something. Anyway, I was wrong about that. They do have chemistry. Uh, it's just that. When you're in the Isabel Lahiri scenes, you're not in the high scene yes. and you're not in the Ocean's 12. And that's just, you don't want to, she's great. And I, and she's, you know, beautiful and they do have chemistry, but, and you just don't really care. You want to be spending time with the other guys. I love the shot of Europol, the, yeah. the speech she's giving. It just kind of <laughs> goes into that office. Uh I think that trying to land the Isabel is actually Lamarck's thing at the, Lamarck's daughter at the end of the movie is a, a little bit of a bridge too far. I, I think it just is is very convenient, but I guess it also brings her back to Rusty. I don't know. How do you feel about Catherine Zeta-Jones in this movie? I guess I'm just thinking about how I feel about her in general, which is I just don't. Mm-hmm. And I, that's not a criticism of her. She's just, it's she's not well served by the fact that she is operating against not only an iconic collection of actors and movie stars, but a group of people that got to do this once before. Yeah. And... I mean, her career is just a very strange career. She's worked with Soderbergh a lot. She has. I think this is her third or fourth Traffic, film with him. this, side effects, and they were supposed to make a movie about Cleopatra together. Yeah, I think, um, you know, she hasn't made a movie in seven years. And I think she's a person who is kind of evaporating from the popular consciousness, which is not a, a, not a bad thing. I'm sure it was her decision to do so, though a lot of women, as they get older in Hollywood, get fewer and fewer opportunities mm-hmm. to make movies. But at this time... She was a really, 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 really big movie star. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just two years after Chicago. So it's interesting to try to wedge in. You needed somebody who has, like, weight, gravitas, a kind of cleverness in her acting persona, which she does. Like, that's kind of how she became a more popular American movie star in, like, sure. the Zorro movies. And she needed to kind of be more playful. So she fits. I, I'm not personally bothered by trying to stitch her to Lamarck in the movie because I think what they're ultimately what the movie is trying to say is like we're all crooks mm-hmm. and she needs to be a crook at the end when they're all having the party. As an actor, I I, I think still think the best thing she's ever done is the, that scene in High Fidelity where she's just like so cold and in control of John Cusack. <laughs> and I still like when she's driving in traffic and she's like shoot him in the head. <laughs> that's kind of my ideal yeah, woman. That's, uh, that, that's on brand. Okay, so we were kind of mixed there. I, 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 I found myself Quite, quite into her in this movie on rewatch. Um, casting what ifs, there really aren't any, obviously, because there's there's a very established 13 or 14 person cast in this movie. But there was a backup plan yes. if Damon had not done the film. <laughs> yes, there now, was. <laughs> I do not know if this was a recast or if it was going to be a different character. But Mark Wahlberg was lined up to replace Damon, who considered backing out of the movie, coming off of a demanding born movie shoot. Is this a bit? Like, is this real? <laughs> I don't know. This is like... Like, why would this get out? The, these, when you read the the promo interviews around this and you watch the videos around Ocean's 12, 
it's like a like a fucked up Preston Sturgis movie. Like they're just doing bits the entire time. They they like are completely just like doing third level inside jokes with each other and pranking. And so I I don't know if Mark Wahlberg was going to be in this movie. Has he ever been in a Soderbergh movie? I don't think so, though. It's interesting that he and Damon have a showdown a couple of years later in The Departed. That's right. Um, That's right. I don't think he's done the Soderbergh movie. Not really his tempo. Yeah, I was going to say. And as opposed to doing any more casting what ifs, since we don't really have any, mm-hmm. should we do the who do you think you are in Ocean's Eleven and who are you actually? Sure. Oh, God. Or Ocean, can, Ocean's 12? Ocean's since 12. It's Ocean's right. 12. Right. Okay. I mean, I, if you want to pick Isabel Lahiri, I just want that option. Oh, for thanks. You. Yeah. Okay. I'm the I'm Lamarck. <laughs> I'm just reading the Financial Times on the south coast of Portugal. Can you can you start? I don't. I I really don't have a feel for this. I would like to be rusty. Obviously, yeah. I'd mm-hmm. like to eat all day long and right. look like that. Yeah. I'd love mm-hmm. to be that cool under pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to. You know, everything that Brad Pitt is, I think it's aspirational. In reality, I probably see myself more as a Linus. But I'm probably more like Virgil or Turk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I think that in my daily office thing, I'm probably most like Virgil. Casey Affleck's Virgil. Also, Affleck, very, very funny in this movie. (laughs) I'll give you a million dollars if you don't speak for a month. You say that to me. I say things like that all the time. Uh, Yeah, that's the sad thing. I mean, I don't know who, I don't even know who I want to be. I I fear at times that you and I are Turk and Virgil. I I have some genuine concerns that I imagine myself to be a very thoughtful and important person with pulling off big schemes. Right. But really, I'm just just a a couple of dopes. Amanda? I mean, there's who you want to be, which I think probably, I don't know whether you want to, I want to be a Rusty or a Clooney, but I think I'm probably the Night Fox in this particular <laughs> you situation. You think that you are the greatest thief in the world? <laughs> no, With because a villa I'm not. in Lake Como? I'm not, ultimately. You I want think to be I'm, the Night Fox. Yeah, I am a, a loner who mm. likes to do activities that involve stretching and do wants you? to, I mean, I do yoga, as okay. you know, and wants to be in Europe and wants to be told that I'm great and doesn't play well with others. Okay. I mean, probably. Okay. Those are my fears. All right. We're, let's go what? to... Um, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a world in which we can... Who's the world's greatest podcaster? <laughs> yeah, right. And invite that person onto a boat and invite Amanda onto a boat and ha- let them have a conversation. And if someone decides that Amanda is not the greatest podcaster in the world, will she then set out to become the greatest podcaster in the world, a la the Night Fox? Yes. Yeah. When Marin asks you, who are your guys? <laughs> Who'd you come up with? Um... <laughs> Let's do Dion Waiters Award. I think this is pretty easy. Nominees, I have three. Okay. Cherry Jones, Albert Finney, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis wins. Tell me I'm wrong. Debate me, cowards. Is Andy Garcia eligible for this? Do you think that Andy Garcia should win it more than Bruce Willis, or do you just want him nominated? I just, I'll just open the, broaden the pool. Maybe okay. we just wanted to talk about it. I, I like, that- I like, sometimes with some of these categories, for Dion Waiters especially, I think that I like to keep it a tight field. 
Disagree. Okay. Okay. Didn't think I that mean, misunderstands the whole premise of this show. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, not to be the best podcaster in the world on you or anything, but maybe we should okay. have a discussion. Ooh, give me some other nominees. I, I just wanted to say, I, Sean pointed out earlier that the scene where they're kind of rounding up, they're getting the game back together, and that is through uh, Terry Benedict. And Andy Garcia is great in all of those scenes, and especially when he goes to see Virgil and Turk and gives that speech about, you know, this is a this is about honor and responsibility and about a very special someone and admitting to her in front of everybody that her wedding and that very special honeymoon trip to Edcott Center will have to be postponed. I like that he's also stabbing everybody with his fucking cane. It's really I just wanted to to mention and honor that work. That that scene is low-key one of my favorites too where where uh Virgil goes through the entire table. Yeah. And thanks, <laughs> Mullethead. He's like, thanks to JoJo and all the guys who work at the shop. And then like pauses on Scott Con and then is like, and everybody else. It's also just one beautiful shot down the table, yes. and you're seeing yeah. all of them as he's like thanking his bishop. And like, <laughs> I think we've overlooked Eddie Izzard and Robbie Coltrane. Okay. Okay. They, I, I they, think that, they, they may appear in other categories, but yes. Okay. But you don't think that they're... So I think that they may be too famous for a future category. For Joey Pants. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, Eddie Izzard is like an internationally acclaimed comedian. I mean, Albert Finney is is quite famous. Yes, I agree, but we're not naming him a that guy. Right. Okay. We're just saying he belongs in Dion Waiters. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I don't think that they should win. I'm not even really going to quibble with Bruce Willis. I, I also agree with Bruce Willis, but I, you know, there's just something about pacing here. You know, we got to read the, the awards out and have some discussion right. before you. You can host Ocean's Thirteen, okay? okay? <laughs> Big barking energy for this category. No one's throwing out Jeroen Crab. I see. Okay. <laughs> what about Jared Harris as Basher's engineer? Fucking amazing. Yeah, great stuff. Really it's good. just like. That's just fantastic stuff. And I don't even know, like, that's also just Soderbergh on the Jared Harris train 10 years before mm-hmm. Chernobyl, you love 15 years it. before. Uh, I'm still going to give it to Bruce Willis. Apex Mountain. Here are some nominees. Oh, boy. Brad Pitt. He is clearly pretty miserable around this time. I think his life is starting to become very scrutinized. Mm-hmm. He's making movies like Troy, which while successful, he does not seem very happy to be in. Mr. and Mrs. Smith essentially blows up his life, but he is very famous. And, and if we are talking about Apex Mountain as people being on like a peak of some sort of career power trip, I think you can make the argument yeah. that Ocean's 12 is Brad Pitt's Apex Mountain. Some other nominees. Arsenal FC. I thought of this. I was wondering if you would mention this given your, your Liverpool fandom. I don't mind. Okay. When you're when you're like look for Arsenal. 30 points ahead of Arsenal in the Premier League table, okay. Arsenal can get all the shout-outs. That's why you brought it up. Yes. No, but I would say that I wonder how many like Americans saw that and were like, what's Arsenal? And kind of like got into Arsenal that way. Arsenal Similarly, also went to the Champions League. Everybody's gonna get mad at me. I think they went the next year hmm. to the final against Barcelona, which they lost. You think Soderbergh made that happen? I think he caught a wave, just like Jared Harris. He got the wave early with Arsenal. Remember the sort of the afterglow of the Men in Blazers boom when everybody in New York City was like, what I do is wake up at 5.30 a.m. and go to a bar (laughs) to watch Liverpool play Arsenal like a fucking demon? (laughs) Remember when that was like there were New York Times style stories about that as a lifestyle choice? Yeah. Do you think it was inspired by this stuff in the movie? It's possible. I I think that this movie brought a lot of European customs to the States. That seems like a lot of credit that the movie is getting. You wouldn't even like it. 
People, their hearts weren't open to the European customs. Is this Apex Mountain for the city of Amsterdam? Um, what? I mean, just, you know. It looks great. Culturally. Name a better movie with Amsterdam in it. <laughs> Maybe in its cinematic history? Yeah, cinematic I, Apex I think, Mountain. Right, I think okay, that obviously I just, like, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar on the history incredible of stuff with dykes. Okay. <laughs> and they did incredible stuff with city planning. The bicycling there is great. Obviously, at the forefront of, of legal marijuana. <laughs> so not the opening of the Van Gogh Museum, for example. Did you just Google that? Did you just well, have I've, Amsterdam facts at well, your I've, I've been to Amsterdam. So tell I know me it's all there. about it. Tell me all about what's better about Amsterdam than being in Ocean's 12. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's a historical city. Yeah. Yeah, okay. With, with elegant design and a deep underbelly. And that's what's amazing about it, which is why it's a great setting for this film. But this film is a piece of Hollywood claptrap and you're <laughs> shitting on a thousand years of artistry and architectural brilliance. Uh-huh. Let's do a second. What about Lake Como in this spot? Because I, at least Lake Como in it the American, popularized Lake Como in the in American consciousness because this what is also what about? in the American consciousness See, and Americans I, I are Clooney idiots. Did them. So, I think Clooney yes, as like the magazine time. cover guy. It's at the same time. He has, is that when this was happening? Yes, yes, he's bought the house in Lake Como and now it's in this movie and people are confusing. This Wasn't he moment. dating a wrestler back then? You make it sound like he was dating gorgeous George in the 1950s. <laughs> Stacy Keebler, I believe the young woman's yeah. name I think was. That was a bit later. Okay, I'm just. I, saying. I, I was always, I was always into that couple. I think okay. that he was dating. Um, what was the the English woman? Snow Snowden, wasn't there? Wasn't that his longtime paramour before Stacy Keebler? No, I, I was, don't remember. I'm sure Julia. This is really know. your corner. Yeah, but it. It's he never really had to pay attention to that until you had to pay attention to that. You I know was what I mean? Attention. He was it a was a man of impeccable taste, I, right? And and good for him, and good for everyone who was involved and got to visit Lake Como, which is something I still have not been able to do. So no judgment. I just don't remember any other apex mountains before I give it to Amsterdam as a city. I mean, you're really stretching out here. Should we say all of humankind is this apex mountain for planet Earth? I think you could make an argument that for a certain kind of silk shirt, it's apex mountain. Yeah. So okay. I wanted to talk about Brad's shirts. Okay. You mentioned it earlier, his clothing and whether it's uh-huh. like a joke and there's the gigolo bit in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's wearing, at one point, a a shiny, a sort of eggshell-colored mm-hmm. shirt mm-hmm. that no living human should wear except for Brad Pitt. Yes. But the kind of t- purple tint one? No. The, there's Well, maybe the shine puts a kind of like right. gleam on it. Do you see Brad Pitt in movies and think... I want to do that. I like, I want to dress look, like that not guy. Not just like I want to be handsome. Like, I want to get his clothes. I want to cut my hair that way. Because on the first Ocean's Eleven podcast, I said, George Clooney, my hair idol, the person who in movies, when he's like really cleaned up and looking debonair, I aspire to that. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, he, Brad Pitt is doing everything I don't like. He has a shaved head. He looks so really, gaudy and really stupid. Like the buzz he's cut. eating all the time, but he looks immaculate. Yes. Well, You, you don't like eating all the time? You know I don't. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't know if maybe you were like... Except if I have my fruit bowl, which (laughs) aforementioned. Yeah, I don't think that this is like... Let me just go ahead and say this for the record. Oh, you have to state that it's for the record. It's he's recording it. Do you want a stenographer like, to come I, in? I know that what I mean by that is I want people to hear me and pay attention. If you take anything away from this podcast, take away this. Wait, oh, Craig, delete this. <laughs> Starting now, delete. Go ahead. <laughs> Ocean's 12 is not a how-to manual, 
Okay. 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 It's don't plan your heist this way. And okay. and frankly, unless you're Brad Pitt, don't dress like Brad Pitt in this movie. Okay. I just, it's there. He is art. And that is, that is fashion is art. That is existence is art. It's much like the fruit bowl. Okay. We're just all getting to enjoy it. Much like we enjoyed the cultural um, history of Amsterdam and Lake Como. Anything else for Apex Mountain? This film? Yeah, in this movie. It's, what, what else is Apex Mountain? Microorganisms. Amanda, did you have any nominees? <laughs> I don't think so. I, this is like a takeoff time for Damon, but... Yeah. I don't know if... I mean, he is coming off Born. I think it's, it's around that, but I yeah. wouldn't necessarily call this movie... Okay. I think him cutting Fomka Potent's hair in the yeah. first Born movie is his Apex Mountain. I think you confused... Uh, Famke Jansen with Franca Potente. Uh, I did. Which <laughs> good, good get though. Thank you. Hey, by the way, for Dion Waiters, yeah. I fucked up because we didn't talk about Toe for Grace. Mm. Mm. For one scene. There's this girl. I love her, man. I love her, but she is driving me crazy. I can't sleep. I can't work. You know, I, I quit the show. I totally phoned in that Dennis Quaid movie. I mean, I, it's like. That movie I did with Dennis Quaid. I phoned that in. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Apex Mountain, Brad Pitt. Let's just say that. Okay. Joey Pants, Jared Harris as Basher's engineer, Cherry Jones as Linus's mom, Robbie Coltrane as Matsui. Are all three of those people too famous? Possibly, but in 2004, I don't think they so weren't. necessarily. Well, okay. Yeah. Point of order. For the record, whatever you, Amanda would like it to be. Does Joey um, Pants, do we talk yes. about it in the moment or are we yes. talking about it all time? I, Sean, that's a great, that's a great question. Because you're right. Cherry Jones even in the last 15 years has somehow become, obviously she was a playwright and stage actor and was a, you know, an accomplished person, but not in the popular consciousness Had as she much done as she is doubt? Mm-mm. I don't think so. I think doubt is 2008. Oh. And she's in the play, doubt, but not in the movie. Oh. Meryl Streep took the role, Correct. right? Man, I don't know. That's a good question. She had. It was 2004, the play. Part of it wow, is like... Apex Mountain, Cherry Jones? I yeah. think part of it is that you want the person you're giving Joey Pants to to always be in that Joey Pants zone. You don't want Forever. them to jump okay. out. So Joey Pants never really made a Chernobyl. You know what I mean? What was Robbie Coltrane's detective series on the BBC? Remember, it was like on A&E for years. I watched it all the time. It was good. I can't remember the name of that it's show. It's like the Frickfurter murders or whatever. It's like what all those things are. Yeah. Sounds right. Downchester. I thought it was okay. one guy's name. Downchester. Cracker? Cracker. Yes. You watch that? I liked Cracker, yeah. Okay. Big Anglophile. Uh, Am I missing any Joey Pants's, though? No, it's that thing where every single— Jerome and Crab, I guess. Yeah, but every Mm -hmm. single person just becomes, like, tremendously famous. It's true. Or is already tremendously famous. Yeah, I I can't think of anyone. I'm going to give it to Jerry Jones. I think that's fair. Linda Partridge, they knew overacting award— did we change the? Did we change? Give this yeah, to it's, it's Pacino and Heat. Oh, oh. It is. oh, time to time to reach into your bag. Did I have a specific line from it? Yeah, it was when he's at the, he's sitting across the table from that guy and he's like, uh, "By I'm the time I get to Phoenix, <laughs> he'll be rising. He'll probably leave a note right on the door. <laughs> Give me all you got." <laughs> Overacting award dedicated to Al Pacino's performance in Heat. You did that just for memory. I kind of, I, I, I knew I, mean, I was going to do it, and I was, I, I was just kind of trying to set you guys up. Um, you know, that movie it's this so cool. <laughs> okay, motherfuckers. Do you like 
practice at home? No, I've just done two fucking I know. 500 minute podcasts on heat. I know the entire movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like, I'm just like just Leonardo like, DiCaprio floating there, around a pool being like, like, you know, bring bring me some sure. some huevos. But there's just no opportunities beyond these podcasts where you get to do this. I do it all the time. Oh, to whom? That's what I want to know. Let me tell you something. Okay. You haven't aged a day. You are a master. Don't ever change. Uh, I don't really find anybody to be overdoing it in this movie. That's the the point of this movie is that everyone is under- underdoing it. Yeah. So I I don't really know what to say. I guess like is Albert Finney overdoing it with those red pants? Is he overacting? <laughs> I don't know. That looks great. He's not- on the boat? No, and he's like oh, waiting for her end. and she's wearing oh, the red okay. dress and he's wearing the red pants. Yeah. We don't hear Weintraub speak, but I can see that he's overdoing sure. it. Sure, okay, Jerry Weintraub. Okay. Yeah. Half-ass internet research. The Ocean's 12 story was taken from George Nolfi's Honor Among Thieves, a spec script that at one time was going to be made by John Woo. Nolfi rewrote the movie to fit the Ocean's characters. This is not uncommon. Uh, the second best Die Hard movie was the same thing. It was uh, Simon Says and it was just about some other shit happening and they're like, let's make this a diehard movie. Rewrite it. Peter Fonda filmed a scene as Linus's dad, but it was cut from the movie and he was replaced in the role by Bob Einstein, a.k.a. Super Dave Osborne, a.k.a. Marty Funkhauser in Ocean's 13. Speaking of Curb. Soderbergh, I bet, is a Curb guy. No doubt. Well, actually, I guess we've never, would know. We've never seen it on the diaries. Yeah. I mean, but I guess it... Too much below deck. There was... That is true. He... He I, he didn't watch the most recent season recently, I think, because I don't think it was on the Culture Diaries. Shame on everyone who doesn't watch Curb. Shame. Movies referenced in Ocean's 12, an incomplete list. Sixth Sense, In Good Company, the Dennis Quaid movie Topher Grace is referring to. <laughs> uh, Miller's Crossing. Explicitly referenced. Obviously, cinematically, many films are referenced. It breaks my heart every time. That's exactly <laughs> how I feel when I watch that scene. John Turturro begging for his life. Recasting Couch. Is there anybody that you would slot in as Isabella Heary, Amanda? No, because I think the—and I don't want to say the problem, because I really enjoy it, but the issue is not Catherine Zeta-Jones, but the fact that this character is having to do a lot of work that doesn't relate to the Ocean's 12. That's my stance. Angelina Jolie as Isabella Heary, better or worse movie? Um, Noisier, certainly. I'm not sure if it's a better movie. My suggestion was going to be Rachel Weisz. A little young in 04? How old is she in 04? She wins an Oscar a few years later, right? Okay. For Constant Gardener, so. Oh, yeah, the Constant Gardener. Great movie. Great movie. I mean, I like the Julie of it all just from a, it's early for the meta text of that, but, you know, kick it off a bit. Okay. And they do have chemistry, so. Picking nits. I already said mine, which is explained to me if Julia, Ro- if Tess looks like Julia Roberts, are the other guys doppelgangers for their Hollywood Lookalikes. I mean, we need to get Soderbergh in here to explain, and George Nolfi to explain himself. You guys seen George Nolfi's The Adjustment Bureau? Yeah, yeah. the hats. Yeah. yeah. You remember yeah. that? Um, do you have any picking nits? Yeah, I have a couple. Oh. Well, here's just one thing I don't understand, and maybe you can explain it to me, or maybe someone who understands technology. I just, how do you identify someone from a random boot print? That you're just finding that's, on the street. That's, I don't believe that's what happened. Well, she identifies the blueprint, and then she's like, and then we, and then we got went the credit the card, and then we were like, yeah. it's nail salon. But how are you linking the blueprint to the nail salon? It is also in the intro scene, which is great, which is the flashback, and Brad Pitt comes in and 
Catherine Zeta-Jones says that she's about she has a break on the Bulgari case, and they found a really good left um, boot print, and they cut to Brad Pitt's boot, which is like worn down in the exact way she's describing, mm. and they put and he's just like whoops and slides it under the chair. But I just don't really understand. I, I don't understand that technology. Yeah, I thought the implication was that they got Frank and Frank dimed on them somehow. Oh. Like, wasn't it that they got Frank because Frank was going to the nail salon? Oh, and yeah, he used but I don't think he card? dined on them. Yeah, I don't Maybe know. Maybe she just knows his shoe size. Any Is other... the implication here that Brad Pitt wears a size 14? No, I think it's just that she's, like, she's, thought... she mentions that the boot print was found at the Bulgari job or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's, and the implication is, like, she finds this size 14 Magnum boot and then, like, runs a check on all Magnum boots bought in Amsterdam mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. week and links it back to a stolen credit card. That had been used at a nail salon, which had to have been Frank. But she also knew that Rusty was there watching her. So, like, that's probably... And this is a larger nitpick, which is just her knowledge base in general. She knows both everything and nothing at all times. She's just like, the Night Fox was here. But also, I don't know the Night Fox's name or what he looks like. I'm just like, ma'am, it's 2004 and you work at Europol. Like, I think you have some scans of some... You can track a boot print. You can probably find him. It's a good point. And and Danny Ocean finds out who the Night Fox is in, like, four hours. Right. And she knows that they raised the roof because she's the daughter the Shulman, of a master the thief or whatever. Yeah. She can tell that the Americans were here. She clearly understands a lot about thieves, but also nothing about thieves. Well, that's because her heart's in it, you know? Yeah, Her that's heart's true. in the way. That's true. Uh, do you think we should delete this pod because of that <laughs> no. on the movie? And I just, I have one more thing. Okay. In the famous, like, the capoeira scene, which I think is, like, a visually very memorable piece of this uh, movie, but he just, like, gets hit by, like, 45 lasers. He gets hit by so many lasers. He does. He does. I think that he looks very graceful and it's very impressive. And we, this is probably where I learned about Capoeiras, but... Uh, did, did, did Vincent Cassell do any of that work? I did not see that in my research. He does it at the very end. I think he looks nice. I think he's moment. definitely training when they show him doing, like, the close-ups of him doing yeah. that. I where, don't know. I don't know. I don't think he did the entire... Where do you guys stand on Vincent Cassell? I, I open. I'm sorry to that man. No, I don't know. <laughs> like I, no, got, I like you, him. You got no take. I, I have no take on Vincent Cassell. I feel like I, I get 60 percent of him in English language movies. I don't feel like he's as emotive as he could be, as he is in his native tongue. I see. Kind of like reading things in translation. Sometimes you're like, what am I missing here in, in Crime and Punishment? When do you think we'll do the irreversible rewatchables? <laughs> Best quote. This is what I. This is probably the category I'm most looking forward to. Um, are you hosting a telethon we don't know about? <laughs> Ruben? This is maybe my favorite line of the movie. Look. Look. It's not in my nature to be mysterious. But I can't talk about it, and I can't talk about why. Rusty? That pre that follows my favorite part when he says, if you're going to ask me a question, give me time to respond. Unless you're asking rhetorically, in which case the answer is obvious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, can I ask you something? You ever notice that you're going to ask, if you're going to ask me a question, give me time to respond. Unless you're asking rhetorically, in which case the answer is obvious. Yes. Okay, can I ask? Yes. You? Thanks. You ever notice that Tess looks? Oh, exactly don't ever ask like that. that ever. Seriously, not to anyone, especially not to her. Wait, why not? <laughs> uh, Turk, come on, he's one guy and he's French. <laughs> um, Linus, we can't train a cat that quickly. An all-time Very one. Good. Linus, yeah. Bruce, Glenn Snackwell, for publicity. In Rome? Bruce, yeah. Glenn Snackwell, publicity. Hey, Glenn. I'm a big fan. Thanks. Very huge. Great. You fired Marcy? Huge, huge oh. My favorite. My f- absolute favorite moment of the movie. Linus, we're looking to come off this baby thing strong. We're, we're, we're looking to come off this baby thing strong. You know, that 
little statue on the mantel starts smirking at you after a while. You know what I'm saying? Not really, Glenn, no. Yeah, sorry. Uh... <laughs> and Bruce Willis, doctor, you might want to call the rice patty now. <laughs> Any others? I mean, I I wasn't in four weddings and a funeral. <laughs> four weddings and a funeral. She wasn't in four weddings and a funeral. I, I wasn't in four weddings and a funeral. Just protect your fake baby. And then the, the follow-up to that, which is just protect your fake baby. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very special moment. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing is, it's an, an, an interplay movie. And mm-hmm. it's obviously hilariously constructed, but it does feel, like you were saying during the Julia Roberts scene, it feels like they're kind of riffing in real time. Mm-hmm. So some of the lines are memorable, but it, it's, just the, it's just an energy. You want to be inside of sequences, not single sentences. What is Casey Affleck's? It just hurts, you know, because I thought we had all agreed to call it the Bellagio job. It just hurts, you know, because it seemed like we all agreed to call it the Benedict job. I mean, that's what we called it when we were doing it. You know? right. If you wanted to call it something else all along, then... Wait, when you have a problem... There's also a good line when uh, Scott Kahn in that scene is like, he doesn't have any money, and he's like, well, you've obviously never tried to create something from scratch. <laughs> Uh, could this be remade? What's the best quote? You guys got one? Mine's Four Weddings and Funeral. Okay. But... I, I think Glenn Snackwell is pretty up there. Okay. It's definitely my favorite. Bruce Franklin Snackwell. Bruce, <laughs> Glenn Snackwell, publicity. <laughs> could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? Get the fuck out of here. Probably unanswerable questions. My... Wait, wait. Would you, would you watch the 10 heists of the Night Fox as a Netflix series? No, I mean sure, but like I, I'll watch anything. But like I, I, I think, yeah, I mean like Easy I guess lay, so. Chris if, Ryan. Is Steven Soderbergh directing it? Is this like his bounty law where he's like doing this? Where like, are they? I would just where I would much heists? rather watch a ten what, different, episode different European city every episode. Sure, yeah, Rusty running the standard is what I want to watch. That's really what separates you and I. Uh, probably unanswerable questions. I this has kind of come up otherwise, but how did Danny get all the biographical details about the most mythical? reclusive thief in the world, the Night Fox, when he was just like, his name is Talur. He's done all these jobs. Here's where he lives. Do you think he just had a Wikipedia page? <laughs> I guess it's like an underworld connect or whatever. Yeah, that's what it seems like because they keep talking about how you broke rule number one, which is you don't yeah, rat yeah, out the yeah. thief. So maybe the so, underworld helped him out. Yeah. Who won the movie? Hmm. I think you can make the case for Pitt. I think you can make the case for Damon. And I definitely think you can make the case for Soderbergh. I think for me, it's either Damon or Soderbergh, because those are both in the moment when you're watching it, the Damon stuff just jumps off the screen and he almost wasn't going to do it. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. like the the risk paid off. Given the way that you suggested some of the Apex Mountain winners, I think perhaps the long term health of our global population (laughs) could have won the movie because of this film's existence. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Our democratic process. Yeah. Here in the United States of America. Us. Is this movie responsible for Obama winning in 08? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Europe is definitely a contender for winning this movie. Yeah. I like that. I like yeah. that. I like that. I like that. Should we go Europe? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, right before the fall, too. You know, just this, this, this thing started to come apart. I want to say Soderbergh because I feel like the first movie is a movie star movie and this is a director movie. Hmm. I think that it's really snazzy. I think it's just like there's no wasted shots. It's gorgeous to look at. There's so many inventive little things going on. He does so much stuff that's just like always in service of the story, but really, really fun to watch. And the reason I rewatch Ocean's 12 is stuff like that. 
So I'm going to go Soderbergh, but I, I respectfully allow you guys to to disagree. You allow us to disagree? <laughs> as, host, as host. Oh, as host. So you've been judging and correcting our opinions this whole time? That's how this works? Look, I'm going to go with Craig and we're going to record a full pod about <laughs> okay. the, the history of Amsterdam and why Ocean's 12. <laughs> have you been to Amsterdam? No. Have you been to the Rijksmuseum? Oh, boy. Have you you started the, this, by the way. Have you seen the Night you, Watch? Chris Ryan started The Night this. Watch? Extraordinary painting at the Rijksmuseum? I haven't been to Amsterdam. Well, get your shit together next time you make a podcast about <laughs> Amsterdam. Okay. Am I right? I guess Who so. won the movie? For real? <laughs> Jesus. I think the emotional sanctity of humanity emerges at the end of this film. I wouldn't do this to you and okay. if you were hosting. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought true. Of, you I, definitely have. I thought so. Amanda's Europe idea was was very good. I feel like we kind of had. Did we have Italy we also the movie? Said Italy let one talented Mr. Ripley. It's a theme among the movies that I love on this podcast. That's it's just, true. Did you on film outside in Europe? Yeah. Ding ding ding. Uh, all right. So Soderbergh, Europe. Soderbergh in Europe. Co-winners. Sorry, Brad Pitt. <laughs> Sorry, Matt Damon. <laughs> you know, Brad got his Oscar. All these guys have Oscars too. We, That's did, the other we thing. did not talk about Clooney almost at all this podcast. He's hardly in the movie. Yeah. And it's okay. That's okay, right? I think we talk about George Clooney a lot on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm a big fan of George Clooney. George, um, weirdly entering a similar space as Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's been a long time since he made a movie. He's got a movie coming out on Netflix this year. I think it's called The Night Sky. You think it'll ever be rewatchables? If I had to guess? Yeah. No. But I, I, I still love him. Okay. Cool. For Sean, for Amanda, I'm Chris Ryan. This has been the Rewatchables Ocean's 12. Thanks so much for listening. 